clinical disclaimer. This podcast is focused on education and entertainment. While we love to help and teach, it is not meant to be used as a replacement for clinical services. If you are experiencing significant relationship issues or major concerns in your sexual, physical, or mental health, please seek the services of a professional provider near you. Welcome to the University of Pleasure, where we have sexual conversation to help build a happier nation. I'm Dr. Tara Jansen, licensed psychologist and certified sex therapist. And I'm Jeremiah James, and I'm just a guy who likes talking about sex. Hey, Doc. Hey. Tis the season. Starting Tis to the season. Up. I saw you. I saw you. You came in, you like, took off that coat. I was like, ooh, <laughs> it's cold where the Doc is now. Ugh, it's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, tis the season, Doc. Tis the season. Yep. We'll talk we'll talk more. Okay. <laughs> and we are back. Yes, tis the season. Tis the season to start bundling up if you're on the East Coast or the center of the country in places where it gets cold. And uh, though it's getting a little chilly here, not getting chilly like it is. Oh, this isn't a weather report. Anyway, the point is that's what we were talking about <laughs> earlier, for Christ's sakes. Uh, but the doc looked a little chilly, took off a very gorgeous, fabulous heavy coat. And I was just like, oh, yeah, it's definitely out where the doc is definitely getting chilly, which also getting ready for the holidays. You doing a big Thanksgiving or are you doing like a Friendsgiving? Like what's going to happen this year, Doc? And where's my invitation is basically what I'm getting at. I mean, probably pretty small on Thanksgiving. Building towards maybe a, a, some outdoor Friendsgiving activity. We'll see. It's in the air. It's, it's in, in the, air. the air for sure. Thanksgiving yeah. is my favorite time because I love to eat. Like it is, and people who know me, Doc, I mean, I know that we've spent time together in person. And like the very first time we went and had dinner together, I tried very hard to not be disgusting when I ate in front of you because it can frighten people. It is a thing that has happened. <laughs> I did I did watch you eat Trace Leche's cake after you after you actively told me how horribly lactose intolerant you were. And then I watched you order. Not just one, but three leches in a cake. And I it did tell me a lot about your personality <laughs> in a singular in a singular culinary choice. <laughs> let me under, let me make this very clear. I was in a lot of pain after that dinner. I mean, about, I, yeah. it's usually about a four hour window and then the abort button gets hit. But you know what? I refuse, as I've told you before here on the podcast, I refuse to let my stomach. I'm so upset I hit the desk. I'm, I refuse to let my stomach dictate and tell me I can't do something. I've taken the pills, Doc. I've tried going, you know, lactose. Free. None of it works. So you know what? Sometimes it's just worth the pain. You know what Car I mean? Carpe diem, I guess. There it is. Just, yeah. I, I just, I recall... Absorbing that about your decision making, <laughs> just <laughs> it's all played out the way I thought it would. Oh, so gosh. all right, <laughs> like, it's all come. It all and you must have one of those moments where you're like, yeah, I was totally right about all of that. <laughs> I, I just gonna have one of those like I saw that coming. Yeah. All right. 
Well, <laughs> I chose to get into bed with this guy, business-wise, that is. All right. Well, listen, today is the part of the reason we're talking. Obviously, it is the season. It is Thanksgiving. But with Thanksgiving and the holiday season comes a lot of difficulty. And we've talked about it here on the podcast before. And the doc presented me with this one. And I think it's actually perfect for right now. And, you know, because of what's been going on with the pandemic and stuff, right, Doc? I mean, a lot of, a lot of mental stru- mental health struggles. Yeah, you know, every once in a while, I know we, I mean, we talk, we always are talking about mental health on here and the intersection with sexual health. But every once in a while, Jeremiah lets me do, like, a mental health focus. And today is one of those days. And I'm very excited about it. And when I say let, I mean, I just tell him that I'm going to do it. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> like the audience, you literally made the audience probably laugh harder than they've ever laughed. Like Jeremiah lets me do anything. Like, yeah. please. There's a bit of a power dynamic here. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, because I would ever be able to dictate something. <laughs> That's sweet. Well, how sweet of you. <laughs> I give you choice, and then I tell you which one to choose. There right? it is. So exactly, exactly the dynamic that everybody <laughs> listens to and knows full well. All right. So here is our topic today. An important topic, bit of a serious topic, but I think is really, really great for now. So I'm happy that you told me I had to do this. <laughs> Digging out of depression. Tis the season to be down for no reason. Why talk about depression, Doc? Well, you know, let's be real. Been a tough couple years here. Lots going on. But also, even if you take that away, this time of year starts to get tough for people, right? There's lots of variables that start to impact mood this time of year. One of which is like, you know, and it depends on where you live in the country, but you know, if you live in the middle of it, like me, you, you know, it gets dark at like four. You've got like light, you know, you're kind of stuck inside. And I don't think that people often realize how much seasonal change can affect mood. Oh, I listen, I can totally attest to this. Okay. And this is totally true. So when I was living in England, because I lived there for a few years, which I've probably mentioned, but I, when daylight savings happens in the UK, and I don't know if you're aware of this, Doc, like it starts to get dark at like 2.45 in the afternoon. Oh, that's intense. Okay. That's intense. So like by 3.30, it's dark, dark, dark outside, like nighttime, like like by 3 p.m., 3.15, 3.30, it is like nighttime, right? And so then imagine this, right? I'm doing a show on the West End, big musical, right? And I got to take care of my voice and all that stuff, Right. And so I would sleep late. So I'd sleep until like 1130 noon because you don't get home until late and you got to rest your voice and you want to sleep as long as you can to stay rested and ready for the next show. So say I wake up at 1230 and then it's dark by 30. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's bad. It was brutal. I'm not going to I'm not going to lie. Like, yeah. I had never experienced like seasonal like, oh, like, but that was the first time. And it's a real thing, man. Like, I, you hear yeah. those stories about people that, like, live in Alaska where, you know, the sun doesn't come up for, like, a couple weeks at a time. Like, it's, I couldn't even process that. Like, that's wild. Well, it it messes with, you know, like, when the light changes and the light shifts and all of that kind of stuff. Like, I, it, I think what people don't realize is that, it, you know, it can start to change, like, our neurochemistry, right? Like, it's not as simple as just, like, oh, it's dark and I'm bummed. Like, it can, like— <laughs> sure. 
it can literally change the way sort of that our brain is processing things. And so a lot of times there's often, especially in certain parts of the country or the world, right, those seasonal shifts can be pretty severe. The other thing, too, is as much as people try, holidays can be stressful. They can be very stressful because a lot of times it can bring up like difficult or complex family dynamics. For sure. This this year, I don't even know how much I've been talking about really beyond just normative complex family dynamics, things involving like differing attitudes around COVID and conflict around that. And, you know, it's just it's really stressful for a lot of people. And and again, family holiday stuff can always be a bit stressful. You know, like a, a lot of folks, maybe it's like, especially when people start, you know, developing kind of their own individual family systems and then obligations and in-laws and other like, you know, and then some people have step parents. You might be running around from four places. You know, it's just yeah, a lot. It's a lot. It is. It's I mean, a it's lot. a real thing when you like you think about the anxiety that would come, especially, you know, with like political polarized world now that we're in, which is pretty hardcore and all these different things. And then you're going to sit down with your crazy uncle who gets drunk and yells at you. And, you know, like it's and, you know, just <laughs> navigate. I mean, it's, it ha- it's a real thing. You know, it's a it's, very real thing. And then beyond that, you know, I think other things that people don't I don't know, maybe you recognize, but don't is like we often kind of. Yes, New Year's is January 1st, but a lot of people actually sort of, whether they realize it or not, kind of mark the year's beginning with the school year. Sure. So September and October, those months are often feel really stressful, right? Because then, you know, it's kind of like back to work, back to school, back to this and that and these other obligations. And so a lot of times there's stressful stuff. And then the other thing is, is that, um, Statistically, a lot of people have lost loved ones during this time of year. That's true. And so you might have sometimes people's grief or sadness or bereavement can be triggered by things like weather, right? Or feelings, you know, it's like this is and, – and I think people – a lot of this stuff is unconscious, right? Like people can be – you know, a lot of times people are like, I was feeling sad today. And then they realized that it was like the anniversary of a loss, Yep. And they didn't even register it on a conscious level. And that happened, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And so sometimes even without our awareness, our brain kind of can hold on to certain seasons or time periods. And this season and winter does tend to be a, just a little bit tougher of a season. Also, yeah. as an aside, our brains love patterns. And if it's used to getting low this time of year, then it likes to do that kind of every year. Got <laughs> so, it. Okay. So there's a lot of different reasons that that can happen. Now, but, but now uh, here's my question with that. What was uh, that last thing you said? Oh, so there's just a lot of different reasons that I think it, the timing is very appropriate. Yeah. No, I think it's very appropriate. But here's here's a question I have, okay? Is it – because is it depression or is it – because here's the thing. A lot of people, like you know – they say like seasonal depression. Is that like a term? Like seasonal depression means like, meh, you know, you're I mean, feeling yeah, lower like... or is it actually like a thing? Yeah. Well, there's, okay. So let's talk about that. So there's, there's a difference between depressive symptoms and having like a specific depressive disorder, right? Okay, I don't know what, so, what, go back a second. You said depressive symptoms. Sim- 
symptoms, right? Okay. So having symptoms of depression okay. versus having enough symptoms that meet criteria for a depressive disorder, right? Okay. So examples of a depressive disorder could be major depressive disorder, could be persistent depressive disorder that used to be known as dysthymia, more okay. of just like low grade, low mood all the time. A lot of the ways that people described dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder is think Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. There you go. You know, yep. just kind of ongoing low grade major depressive disorder is more about distinct episodes of depression. Okay. And some people might have a depressive disorder that has a seasonal pattern as in pretty good most of the year. And then there's a specific kind of seasonal trigger and they really see it a lot during that specific season. Okay. Got it. And so different people can meet different criteria. However, lots of people might be experiencing depressive symptoms. They just don't quite meet that threshold for depressive disorder. disorder. But that doesn't so, mean, that doesn't mean, I'm going to talk about some things people can do and can try. Just even though you don't meet criteria for the depressive disorder, doesn't mean that, you know, if you're feeling kind of down and low in the dumps, that these things also might not be helpful. Okay, but here's my question. Even if you don't have enough of the symptoms to be depressive disorder, is, is it still depression? You follow what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I mean, so technically, like you're <laughs> like uh, in in terms of like a medical diagnosis, you would not make a diagnosis unless somebody meets enough symptoms to meet criteria for a diagnosis. So if somebody was having seasonal depression, because here's the thing, like you hear a lot, you know, people get, a, you know, especially like older generations, like, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, be happy you know, do something to make yourself feel better kind of a thing, right? Where they kind of, I hear a lot of people kind of poo-poo on like a, like a seasonal depression that it's not real depression. Yeah. So, okay. So, it, yeah, it, it absolutely is real. Okay. Well, that, that's <laughs> what I want to make sure. Because like, you know what I'm that's... saying? Like, just because you don't have yeah. a season, just because you don't have a depressive, di depressive disorder. But a seasonal depressive pattern is a depressive disorder. Okay. Like that can be a part, that can be a part of a depressive disorder. And the thing to remember is like, you can have mild, moderate to severe depressive disorders. You can have depressive disorders with different type of qualifiers, meaning like some can have certain seasonal patterns. Some are more uh, like a single episode versus recurring episode. There's all sorts of qualifiers, and we won't get into all of them today because you don't. People out here don't need to like be diagnosing people. Right, it's that, and we don't want people to fall asleep, Doc. Honest to God. Yeah, I mean, it's still that supposed too. To, you know, <laughs> right, that too. But to answer your question, like depression tends to be really underdiagnosed. Often there's a lot of people that do meet criteria for depression, but they don't realize it. Also, it tends to be underdiagnosed if you look as trends um, in, I would say more of the research has been done on cisgender men. Okay. But it's an under it tends to be underdiagnosed. Why? Because of what you just talked about. Because there's a lot of stigma around depression. I know we did an episode on anxiety, and what's yes. really and this is more anecdotal, but what's really interesting to me is people have a hard time sometimes acknowledging and admitting anxiety, but anecdotally speaking, I see people having an even harder time admitting depression Be or like admitting and, and admitting suggests there's a crime committed. Right. But I mean, well, no, but it's true. But here's the thing, Doc, you know, acknowledging that they're struggling with depressive symptoms. Yeah. Like as a as a cisgender male, you know, I can only speak for me. But, you know, 
when you're growing up and, you know, I grew up with, uh, you know, the baby boomer generation being my parents and stuff. And, and uh, you know, there was a lot of stigma that went around, you know, being depressed and that you should just, like I was saying earlier, I was making half a joke, but, you know, like, just got to buck up. That's not a real thing. You're just not trying hard enough to feel better and kind of go out and feel better, right? And so, like, depression kind of became that same kind of stigma of, like, you go and see a therapist, like you are weak and you are broken and you are a sad person, right? And and it's a real thing that people still kind of see depression uh, or depressive disorders as some sort of like, you know, personal failing, personal, personal weakness. Failing. Yeah, that they not just trying. can't. They just can't get over it, and you know, trying, not trying hard enough. Blah right. blah blah. I mean, here's the thing: when I say blah blah blah, I know I sound bitter, but I have a real have a real bone to pick. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can imagine. I, let me let me tell you about my bone to pick. I think it. This is my bias and my belief, right? I'm not saying it's the truth. I'm saying it's what I think and I believe. I think that it was. A horrific mistake to divide things into physical and mental health. Okay. Because because dividing things into physical and mental health, people have started develop this, like whether they like to acknowledge it or not, that people have just this endless level of power and control over their mental health in ways that they don't over their physical health. But in reality, a lot um, in mental health, many of the things that people struggle with in mental health have a lot of biological and physiological contributing factors and variables, genetics, neurochemistry, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's all sorts of things that impact that. Sometimes people can be doing all of the right things, trying all of the right stuff, and their mood's still crap. Yep. And that has to do with things that are happening in the body. It is no different than, you know, you can have somebody who has high blood pressure and exercises and eats well and takes really good care of themselves, but they still have high blood pressure. Yep. It's not that they're not trying hard enough. It's that there's certain biological contributors. Yeah, those behaviors help. They help manage it, but there are certain biological, physiological contributing factors that make it really hard to just not have some of those symptoms. And the same is true of a lot of mental health and depression included. But we do have a lot of cultural stigma and like belief systems, whether we acknowledge them or not, that I see all of the time around depression is this thing that if you are depressed, you are failing. That's right. And you're just not trying hard enough. Well, yeah, and and I, I can honestly say, Doc, you know, as somebody, and I've talked about it a little bit here, but as somebody who has a severe learning disability and, and, and has, has struggled in his life with it, and it's something I deal with on a daily basis, I used to face a lot of that and still do, actually. You know, when you talk to somebody about having a, a learning disability or, or you struggle in that way or somebody with depression, right? And I, I've tried to explain it to people as, you know, it, just like you were explaining it, you know, we talk about our physical bodies and, you know... I might be in really great shape and exercise all the time, but I still might have heart problems because it's genetics, right? And it yep. doesn't matter how hard. I mean, it doesn't matter how hard that I would try to 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 shut out the rest of the world and focus on reading that chapter for school. I just couldn't remember. It didn't matter how hard I tried. And, you know, part of the thing that I always would run into and it was very hard for me was, you know, people always saying things like, yeah, I have that same problem. You know, but if you just do X, Y, and Z, it's like, no, no, actually, you don't. It's not the same. And and I always say things like, uh, you know, if you were to, if you were to, if people were to see 
that you didn't have an arm, say, right? They would understand, say it's your right arm that's missing, they would understand that you couldn't throw a baseball with your right arm because they can see that that ball, you couldn't, you don't have an arm to throw that ball, right? But with mental health, it's something that can't be seen. And, and, and I think that also adds to the stigma. You know what I'm saying? Like it's- I do. You're, you're actually talking about dialogues that people have a lot around the difference between visible versus invisible disability. Right. Right. When there is a visible disability, people sometimes have more compassion or thoughtfulness about that. Now, let's be real. Sometimes with the vis- visible disability, there are other challenges that can come along with that. Of right? course. God, yes. But, but with- um, invisible disabilities, whether they're chronic health conditions, whether they're mental health conditions, right? And again, I don't think we should separate them, but or like, but if they're being put in those categories, a lot of times there is they're taken less seriously. People have a lot more sort of like you actually gave a really good example, right? Where people's like, oh yeah, that's normal. I've struggled with that too. If you just do this blank, the other thing I would say too to what you're talking about is not all depression is created equal. Some people have mild depressive symptoms and mild can, you know, hey, uh, do some exercise, maybe do a little mindfulness, hey, go in for your weekly yoga and that's pretty well managed. But then you have some people with much more severe depressive episodes where they can, I have some clients I've worked with over the years that try the hardest I've ever seen people try and they do everything that they can possibly do and it manages and it helps, but they still struggle with really low mood and other depressive symptoms. And it probably would be good to talk about what some of the depressive symptoms might be. But the reality is that part of what often is required in sort of management of depression is some self-compassion around the fact that it's happening. Because when I see people, there's a lot of layers, right? There's, I'm sad. And now I feel shameful that I'm sad. Yeah, I'm embarrassed. Right? You know, I listen, I'm, and I'm depression wasn't the same. I'm... But yeah, it, it, that's exactly it. You know, I, I even for me with my learning disability doc, like when I couldn't do something and I really would try really hard and then I still would fail at whatever that task was, you know, or felt that I failed, I would then beat myself up and shame and feel very shameful that I couldn't do it. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm, I'm equating yeah. that something what to what depression would, what you were just saying there, like, you know, they're depressed, they're doing all these things and it's still, they feel badly. And so then they feel ashamed because they still are having yeah. these low moments. Right. Well, and part of where that shame comes from is that social messaging of like, well, if you just tried harder. Right. Yep. Yep. And I don't think it's because people are purposefully, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, I don't think it's because people are purposefully trying to be cruel or rude, but I think sometimes it's hard to have empathy for something if you haven't experienced it on the same scale. So for instance, I've had chronic migraines since I've been 13 and <laughs> I'll get a migraine and someone will come up and be like, oh, you know, here, you know, have you ever tried ibuprofen? <laughs> yeah. 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 Thanks for right? that. Like, you know, and someone might be like, oh, you know, I, ha- I had a headache a couple weeks ago. And, you know, I it just was like, you know, and the way they're describing it is clearly like much milder than what I've experienced. Right. right, right. And, and I know that people are well-meaning. They're trying to be kind. They're trying to be supportive. But it also doesn't make me feel super excited sometimes where it's like, yeah, these are not the same thing. Right. So I think sometimes people in their quest to be helpful, part of just, and and again, I don't think it's because people sometimes are trying to be dicks. I think it's because they just, 
if you can't experience it sometimes and haven't experienced it, sometimes there's a limitation of how far your understanding and empathy, because empathy comes from understanding. Right. Right. Totally agree. And sometimes it's hard to be empathic in the ways that you want. And then also straight up, there are just some real toxic messages about mental health that are a problem. Right. So some, I also want to be clear that that also exists out there. Absolutely. Um, All right. So let's talk about some of the symptoms. Yeah. So, like I said, it's underdiagnosed, or sometimes people just don't even realize that they're struggling with depressed mood. Maybe they don't have a depressive disorder, but, you know, they're having some some symptoms that might be uh, indicative to that, like, hey, maybe if you intervene now, you can kind of prevent this from getting worse. Okay. So the typical symptoms that people often think of when they think of depression is, like, sadness, low mood, feeling kind of down. Like, those are the things that people often think of. But the other sort of symptoms that often can occur. And again, some people experience some of these, some people experience most of these, some people, you know, some people have different expressions, but ones that um, are pretty common are apathy. So apathy is just, and this is one that people miss often. Apathy is just like not caring, right? Sure. I don't feel, I don't feel good. I don't feel bad. I actually just feel kind of numb. Another symptom that sometimes people miss is uh, irritability, being really irritable, being really kind of annoyed, easily annoyed, quick to anger, being angry, um, high distractibility, difficulty with focus, rumination. So rumination would be like spinning, kind of like ruminating, ruminating on maybe past mistakes or things that didn't go right and just kind of milling on it over and over. Okay. Some of the, some of the more severe symptoms, right, sometimes can be like a lot of like internal, you might want to, it might be called like negative self-talk low self-worth, low self-esteem, more severe would be hopelessness, worthlessness, obviously suicidal thinking. Those would be on the more severe end of the spectrum. People that are isolating more um, and you're noticing that you're feeling more isolative and even in a room of people, you're starting to feel alone, even though you're got lots of people around you. Another symptom that sometimes people can miss is is loss of pleasure. So if you notice that you're not enjoying the stuff you normally enjoy as much as you used to, those are that's a that's often a symptom that maybe your your mood is dropping. And then low energy, fatigue, poor and then definitely poor motivation, low motivation, having a hard time getting yourself to really do anything. So those would be some of the more common symptoms. Okay. All righty. And so I think this is a good place to take a break because there's a lot of information we just planted, right? So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about what to do about it. Sure. All right. We'll be right back. And we're back, ready to be healed by the doc. And by healed, I mean, this is obviously not therapy, and she's obviously not therapizing <laughs> anybody. She's just going to give some helpful suggestions and tips to the trade of maybe what we could do with our seasonal. Get you, get you, get you started. Get you moving. You get you motivated. Get you feeling. All right. Lay yeah. it on us. Well, as in true fashion, can I just say one more thing about depressive symptoms? Okay. Um. So... A lot of times people might think that someone's depressed, but they're when people are having what would be normative reactions to certain circumstances. So for instance, somebody has lost a loved one. Of course you're going to be sad. 
of course, like bereavement, loss of a loved one, that's not a depressive disorder. That's normal. You're going to be sad. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you had a breakup. That's just called normal human low mood sadness feeling like that's just something that normally happens when difficult trying things happen. So for instance, I mean, we're going to probably see a lot of studies on COVID being told there's a major pandemic and being forced to isolate in your home. That's probably not understanding what the hell is going on. Lots of fighting between people about what the right thing is to do. I mean, I'm going to wager that that's probably going to make people a little bummed out. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with that one, Doc. Right. So if you if you notice you're getting sad and having reactions to that, I would just say, congratulations, you're human. That's not really depression, right? That's just probably normative stuff. Now, the caveat to that is, let's say it doesn't go away after a period of time. Let's say someone has a breakup and it's like six months, a year, and people are still feeling super duper. Okay, now maybe that's transitioned into more of depression, right? So that's just, you know, so sometimes that can happen, but also like, if someone's like, oh, I'm I'm really sad and I've been crying for days because my partner just broke up with me, you know, my partner of 10 years. I just went through a divorce. Well, yeah, you're sad. <laughs> like, that doesn't mean you have major depressive disorder. That means you just went through a breakup. Yeah, you had a lot of loss. It's really it a difficult time. Right. So um, anyway, I just wanted to say that. Well, I, I appreciate uh, you explaining that because there is. Yeah, I, I could see where that because it, 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 this world. So it just feels and I'm so glad you're, you actually chose this episode because it's even answering questions for me because it gets murky. You know, it's like someone's like, yeah, I had a breakup. I'm really depressed. Can we just kind of throw the language around a lot? It's like, well, are you depressed or are you just really sad because of your breakup? You know what well, I mean? And, you know, here's the thing. Depressed is both oh, just a. I mean, if someone says like. There is a difference between saying I'm depressed and a depressive disorder. Sometimes for someone, it might mean both. I am depressed and I am very severely struggling with depression. Some people just use depressed as like, I feel low. I feel sad. So honestly, for me, I'm not the language police here. Like if somebody says I feel depressed, I'm going to be like, okay, what does that mean? Right? Like, and that's in more of a therapeutic context. And people use that word regularly in language all the time. And I think sometimes it's an indicator that they're just feeling sad and low and maybe they're having a hard time. And in other cases, it might mean that they're really struggling with a pretty specific set of symptoms that they're having a hard time uh, managing. So, you know, I think there can be I think that that language can carry a lot of different meanings. All right. So tips of the trade. What's to get us started? What do we need to think about here? Okay, so this is probably going to be one of the most important things I say about like what to do. Here's the good news and bad news. Uh, I'm going to give you some tips, but there is no solving depression. I'm not that good. (laughs) I don't know. I think you're pretty good, Doc. Uh, I'm not that good. Um, Depression is often, especially if we start talking about depressive disorders, but depression is often idiopathic. Idiopathic meaning multiple pathways to its development, right? Okay. So there can be multiple contributing factors. So there can be certain biological, physiological factors. There can be environmental factors like certain stressors, things that are going on in the world that are difficult. There can be psychological factors like temperament that somebody might have or thinking patterns that they've kind of gotten stuck in. Like, so for instance, like maybe getting really attached to certain resentments about the world or somebody else or how they're treated. You know, sometimes this may be 
thinking patterns just about like feelings of like worthlessness, poor self-esteem, low self-worth kind of stuff. And they've kind of rehearsed that thinking about themselves for a really long time. That would be an example of a psychological contributor. And different people have different sort of levels. Everybody, like if I think about depressive disorders, they're not all created equal or the same. Every person sitting in front of me has sort of their own experience of that and what that might mean and how they got there, right? And that's important to, in terms of how to intervene because if something's idiopathic, meaning if it has multiple pathways to development, it means that there are probably the approach to helping treat it is multidynamic. There's not going to be a thing. Right. It's not going to be like thing. some like magic bullet, right? It's going right. to be like multiple. You're saying like, you know, like yoga with possible therapy with possible this would be, you know, might help, you know, some of these things. Right. So, all right, let's get right. into that. Let's get into so, that. Yeah. I'm ready. So I'm usually, ready to learn. Yeah. So usually in my experience, helping manage, figuring out how to manage depressed, whether it's just depressed mood, low mood or a depressive disorder, it's more about finding the right cocktail of things that helps you manage it. And I want to be very clear around the word manage. Depressive disorders are a chronic condition meaning that it's like a chronic, any other chronic health condition, right? Like, so I brought up my chronic migraines, right? Like I don't get to not have them, but I can do a pretty good job managing them, right? right? Or chronic right. back pain or other kind of health issues. So in terms of like, what are some of the different things people can try out in their cocktail, right? Well, Obviously, one of the things that clearly I'm going to promote is therapy. <laughs> yes, please. Right? Talking to somebody, if it's not therapy, maybe a support group, maybe you don't feel like you need that much. Maybe it's just starting to talk to a friend or talk to a loved one, talk to your partner about how you're having a hard time. Yep, and again, absolutely. some people some people might just be more down in the dumps and not really struggling with specific clinical depression, but it's still... A lot of times getting out of your own self-isolation with it is very helpful. So yep, obviously yep, I'm going to yep. promote that one. And now I want to talk about medication. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, <laughs> people, bum. People are going to – people have a lot of feels. Yeah, there's a lot of feels. Oh, oh. And, it, it, you know, I got feels. I got a lot of feels. So I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. So – this is where I go, I am not a medical doctor, okay? But disclaimer. I'm going to talk more about sort of disclaimer. I am not a medical doctor. But clearly because I regularly work with depression, I regularly work with folks taking um, or considering taking antidepressants. So there is a lot of stigma about being on antidepressants. Let's be honest. It's very normative, meaning lots and lots of people. I can't remember the stat on it, but it's like, I think it's somewhere around 50% of adults at some point in time might try an antidepressant. Don't quote me on that, but it's, it's pretty high. And so the reality is that a lot of people try them, but I have a lot of, con like, why consider antidepressants? Why not? I remember when I first started out in my career, I was probably trained in very much like in a model of like, you think it, you can be it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you can do anything, right? And then I actually started working more with depressive, like more major depressive disorders. And I started understanding a little bit better this idea of sometimes what I was talking about earlier, that there can be biological contributors that and physiological contributors that someone can be doing their best and it's still just really hard. Yeah, when you well, listen, look at I mean, you know, I don't mean to stop you, but you know, when we were talking earlier about my learning disability, like I, it will never go away. 
Like I can't, I can't will it to go away. I can't wake up one day and, and hope that I could read that chapter of that book and that day will be the day that I will have conquered it that will all of a sudden go away. This is how I was wired. It is in my DNA coding and I utilize medication to help me with my daily struggles with my learning disability. And there's a lot of stigma even with that. I'm so, sure there is. Well, you know, I'm not. I'm sure. I, I, I agree with you. There is. Right. And and so with when you look at research regarding depression, right, therapy is incredibly useful to, for depression. It has really great long-term benefits. Medication is also really helpful for depression, especially major depressive disorders and even persistent depressive disorders or seasonal. The combination of both, often the most effective. I agree. So part of it is that like, you know, and I'm not going to ever push someone into meds or things like that, but because I think it's people's personal choices, obviously, in terms of what they want to do. I think what is tricky sometimes is when people's kind of entirety for reasons of not wanting to try it, even though they've really been struggling, is because they're worried how others might judge them if they try it. Right. Right. It doesn't have to do with a specific value system around taking medication. They take other medications. They regularly might take other medications. It's more about if I take it, it means that I've failed. And that is actually where I feel like some people can have a really hard time. And that's where I start to get really, like I said, I, I have a bone to pick around like, you know, if somebody has diabetes, it's acceptable to take, right? That's a chronic yeah, condition. Yeah, I mean, then nobody would there question be, it. You can manage certain things through behavioral, right, type one or two, through certain behavioral actions, what you eat, how you engage with your health. But then there's also certain degrees of it in which you just may need certain meds to be the fullest kind of, you know, like a version of health in terms of that. And obviously different people can get away with different things in terms of what they need. But that's where it starts to get really frustrating because it really limits people. The other reasons that sometimes people don't want to take antidepressants is they're worried about um, developing a dependency. Now, one thing that I would say, again, not a medical doctor, please talk to your medical providers if you're considering antidepressants, right? But the, the one thing I would say is that antidepressants are not like you have to titrate down off of them if you take them. So you shouldn't just suddenly stop taking them. They take a while to build up like therapeutic value in a person's bloodstream. And then it can take a while to come down from them. So they are a med that you can't, well, it's not advised to just be like, I take, then I don't, right? You can feel bad. You can get headaches in, you know, there are some very rare side effects sometimes that people can have more severe symptoms. But like for the most part, they're non-addictive forming, meaning there's a difference between taking opiates and I developing. I was going to say, a, it's not an opioid. We're not talking Oxycontin no. here. It's not right. something. Or, yeah. or a benzodiazepine, so like Xanax or Ativan or something like that, which right. people might use to help with like panic attacks or things like that. But with antidepressants, it's really more of like that it has to build up in your bloodstream to take therapeutic effect. And then, you know, it's hard to just stop taking it. But people titrate down and titrate off of it all the time. And it's not like, well, now I'm just addicted to my Prozac. That's not a real thing. It's not the same as other like addictive sort of medications. Right. So so it doesn't have addictive properties in that way. And people the other thing is is when meds have addictive properties, people have impulses to abuse them. People don't really abuse their antidepressants, right? Like yeah, you're not, not going like, to a party with some Zoloft and gonna be like, like it's gonna be crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's not that. The other thing too is lots of people will take like people are like, well what if now I need them forever? 
a lot of people will take antidepressants during difficult periods and some people might stay on them because they try to go off and they're like, just kidding, that was really helping. And some people might end up going off of them because they get through the difficult period and they're like, oh, well, that was really helpful and it got me through with a little extra assistance. Thank you. Um, and more often than not, those people aren't just like hanging out being like, I can't function without my antidepressants, right? Some people do need them because they really help with management. And that's kind of everyone's journey to take and to figure out. And that depends often on severity of depression. Um, but the other thing, the other reason that people might often not want to try antidepressants is because of side effects, right? And so you, you don't get something for nothing, right? There, with any medication, there are often side effects. And yep. one, because you, and, very yep. well and some are more severe than others, depending on the dose, depending on this, depending on so many variables. There are so many variables. And one, just because it's relevant to this podcast, a very common side effect of certain antidepressants, more specifically the SSRIs. So that would be like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft. There are different types, by the way. There are different classes of antidepressants. And so if people mm -hmm. are interested, you should ask your doctors because different classes come with different side effects. But some of the more commonly prescribed ones are SSRIs. And those can come with some sexual side effects, right? So sometimes lowering of libido, sometimes maybe some orgasmic, more common, like, is orgasmic issues. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll tell a personal story here, Doc. I got another one for you. Bada bing. This was, uh, I want to say about 10 years ago. I was struggling really bad uh, with my learning disability and different medications, and the doctor recommended that I take Zoloft, right? He mm -hmm. said, you know, maybe Zoloft, that will level, you know, try this thing. And uh, again, I'm not ashamed of it at all. And and uh, But he did warn me about possible sexual side effects, but now I am a young, healthy guy. I'm like, strong like bull, baby. I'm worried I'll overcome anything. <laughs> right? But what I did find was during masturbation, I struggled to ejaculate mm -hmm. like that instead of like you know being able to handle that uh you know like a quick before bed want to get a good night's sleep kind of masturbation session right that i was on zoloft and just for me the way that again because there's so many variables so many different things uh you know it affects everybody differently and some people have no side effects right but i had that side effect where it, it was like uh you may have difficulty ejaculating right like it may take a, a little bit more time than you're used to. And I noticed that. That was a thing that I actually noticed. I'm like, well, yeah, it's taking a lot longer. I'm starting to get a cramp here in my in my, mm -hmm. my biceps, right? So it, there is a possibility. But you know what? It was very helpful to me in the same way. And I was more than happy to have to take a little bit more time to ejaculate for the benefits of what Zoloff offered for me at right. the time. Right. And that is sort of a really good example of like a lot of times something has to give in one direction and it's a cost benefit analysis. Right. Like so another really common side effect that people are worried about is weight gain. Yeah, sure. And sure. Um, one of the things and I've had this conversation with people of like, yeah, that's probably not ideal. But would you rather be five to ten pounds heavier or be super duper depressed? Right. Like. Right. So sometimes not all things are created equal. Also, as an aside around the sexual functioning piece, if you're really depressed, a lot of times that also impacts functioning. So sometimes it's kind of a wash, if I'm being honest with yeah, you. Yeah, for sure. Like, because, you know, what's really fascinating, I've had clients where, like, they've had some sexual side effects, but their sex drive goes up because they're less depressed. There you go. And so maybe it takes them longer to orgasm, but now they're at least interested again exactly. in being sexual. Absolutely. Like, and like we've talked about on the podcast, like, 
things like those are more like, well, you can adapt to it taking a little longer to orgasm. You can adapt to some erectile dysfunction. You can adapt to some of that stuff. There are skills and strategies for that. That's not often the end of the world. It's much harder to adapt to like, you know, especially if you're struggling in more severe areas of like, you know, hating life and what's going on and not being able to engage in it to the degree you want. And so part of it is also trying, and I understand that this can be tricky, but sometimes you just have to try. And the thing is, is sometimes you got to try a couple and you got to set a realistic expectation around that. And I, you know, one of the things that's always a little tricky is that sometimes medications, you know, you try one and people are like, well, antidepressants don't work for me. And it's like, well, there's a lot of them. Yeah. There's a lot of different types. I mean, look, even for... Even for my learning disability, there's several different types of medications. There's, you know, the, um, you know, amphetamines, you know, and then there's the uh, non-amphetamine versions and several different types and different, you know, uh, time-release capsules and all kinds of stuff. And you kind of become an expert because yeah. if you're really serious about trying to manage something like my learning disability or depression, you're going to want to learn about there are several others. So. You know, uh, just know there's no shame in any of it. But if one doesn't work, please try a different one if it's something you feel that you might need or your doctor might need. Because, you know, uh, I know there's a lot of ups and downs with all that. I've gone through them and I'm not embarrassed at all to talk about it to anyone. And, uh, you know, keep on trying is all I'm saying. Your girl pal Jeremiah James says keep on trying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and so like that's, you know, around medications and we could talk about that for a long time, but I'll get to some of the other things you can do here. That is something that people can try. Right. And it can make a big difference and it can help a lot. And some people try medications and it doesn't. But to your points, sometimes like about just this idea, sometimes you just got to try. And it really is like I just got to try testing some stuff out, be open to some new things, see what works, see what doesn't. And that really is going to be often what is most helpful in the management of depression. But outside of meds, we can talk about some behavioral things. Yeah, let's talk about that stuff. Let's talk about those. All right. So this is one of the hardest recommend. This is the hardest one. But this is probably more for folks that who are really struggling with maybe some of those like fatigue, low energy, uh, low motivation sort of depressive symptoms. And this sounds very cruel, but often the solution is part of the problem. It's called behavioral activation. You've got to do something. And I mean anything. So what I mean by that is a lot of times when people are depressed, they stop doing things. Why? Because they're depressed. So there's low motivation, there's low energy, there's fatigue, and a lot of stuff might, for some people, feel kind of pointless. And it depends, again, severity scale where you are. But so what happens is it becomes a bit of a feeder system, right? Like people be like, well, I just don't have the energy to hang out with friends and I I don't feel much motivation to hang out with my friends, so I'm not going to hang out with friends. So then they don't hang out with friends and then they're like, I feel really lonely and isolated and I feel like I don't have anybody, right? And so then that further yeah, feeds vicious depression. vicious cycle I'm hearing here. Right, or I feel really low motivation. I don't feel like I can get up and take a shower today, right? Okay, well, then they don't take a shower and then they feel maybe dirty or gross or not very good in terms of their hygiene and then that makes them feel worse about themselves and then it gets even harder, right? And so a lot of times one of the things that I'll have people work on is picking a specific target behavior, like something activating. Maybe it's, it depends on the severity. Maybe for some people that have maybe lower grade depression, it might be like 
I'm noticing that I'm isolating from friends a lot. Okay. How do we literally trap you into social situations? There you go. (laughs) Because like, so for instance, a strategy for that might be like when you have even a wave of motivation, right? And by a wave, I mean, you think about, I need to hang out with people. Text as many people and friends as you can think of and set up plans. Trap yourself because odds are good when those plans hit, you're going to say, I don't really feel like doing anything, but your fear of disappointing and not showing up will maybe outweigh that lack of motivation. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then odds are better that you'll show up have a good time and probably feel better afterwards. Yeah, feel better, Simil- maybe start breaking the cycle a little bit, bit by bit. Right. S- similarly, like um, if someone's maybe a little more in the severe scale or end of the spectrum, let's say they're struggling with like kind of basic self-care stuff. There's research out there that getting up, taking a shower and leaving your house for even an hour a day or a little bit can be as effective as certain antidepressants. There you go. And so sometimes when people are feeling depressed, they struggle to take care of their physical self. So one of the things that it's like, all right, I don't care if you do nothing else. I don't care if you sit on your couch and you watch Judge Judy all day. I still want you to get up. I want you to get dressed to whatever degree feels like you could leave the house if you wanted to, right? If you wear makeup, put your makeup on. If you do your hair a certain way, do your hair. Put on clothes that you would let other people see you in. Take a shower, get ready. If you just sit on your couch after that, that's fine. But that's all you need to do this week. And I want you to try to do that every day. Well, what's very interesting is when people do that, what do you think they're more likely then to do? <laughs> Leave their house. That's right. Go out. And Go then out a little bit more. I've even been, you know, I even got a suggestion one time, uh, and it was really helpful for me when I was struggling, was uh, just go out and go to a coffee shop. Just just go to yep. a coffee shop. Go sit in a coffee shop. Get dressed. Take your shower. Go sit in a coffee shop and be around people. You don't have to talk yep. to anybody. Yeah. But just seeing people coming in and out of that coffee shop, just seeing that the world's moving, just seeing that things are happening, have your yep. cup of coffee and go home. And I thought, yeah. I was like, oh, that sounds really, yeah. like, yeah, that, I could see why I, that would be really helpful. I'll talk to people a lot about like what I call low-hanging fruit. If people set goals too high, right, then they won't succeed and they'll feel like a failure. So part of this is really important that you set the goal based on where you're at, not where you want to be, right? If you say, I want to be able to leave my house and go to the gym and run five miles and you're barely being able to get out of bed and brush your teeth, you need to start with brushing your teeth, maybe taking a shower. And that's there. And there's nothing shameful in that. You got to also, and this is the harder part of it. This is more the cognitive work, letting that be enough. Good job, me. Yep. Fantastic I got up me. and I brushed my teeth and I put on clothes. Good and job. Job. Versus like sometimes people can get a little bit in a headspace of like, well, that just feels pathetic, right? Like I should be able to do more than that. And it's it's about balancing out behavior and then what I what would be described as self-compassion. Because it's just not going to be helpful to you if you can't, right? Like it's going to be demotivating. Yep. And so- that kind of stuff, starting where where you're actually at versus where you want to be is very important. Um, some of the other things, I just brought one up. Try to start to identify your, counter-produ- your counterproductive thinking patterns, i.e., what's the thinking that's getting in your way? So, for instance, most people can identify it if they take a little time and sit down and think about it. A counterproductive thinking pattern, I just gave an example of one. Well, I could do A but that's not enough. So why even bother? Right. 
right? That would be a counterproductive thinking pattern. Try to identify that and try to start to challenge that a little bit. So for instance, saying even out loud, that's counterproductive, okay? Right. Doing, and using more of like your log, this would be more cognitive behavioral kind of therapy stuff, using more your logical mind to try to challenge that depressive voice. Speaking of the depressive voice, another thing that I will have people do is what I, it's, uh, would be called externalization strategies. So externalization strategies, um, there's a couple different types. One is like naming your depressive voice because some people have a depressive voice. It's their voice, but it's in their head. And it might be, if it's pretty bad, it might be really negative. Like you're a loser, you suck, or here are all the reasons that you're not a good person or whatever the case might be. And they really can hear that voice and that voice gets really loud. And so sometimes I'll have people and it feels really silly, but I'll be like, I want you to name your voice, give it a name, you know, like whatever, like Voldemort or something. Right. And I want you to start to be like, hey, and I want you to try to soothe that voice when it comes up, right? When you notice it being like, hey, Voldemort, chill. You're being unhelpful. And it sounds very silly, but what that does is it starts to separate that voice from you. Yeah. Right? Yes. Because, right? Because when we're enmeshed with that, then we feel like, remember I talked about there's layers of depression. Then it's like mm -hmm. people will get really stuck in these loops of like, I'm being so cruel to myself. What's wrong with me that I'm being so cruel to myself? I am a failure because I'm doing this versus being like, that's my depression. That's not me. Right. right. And you're starting to try to separate that out. So I'll often have people pick names that are like comical to them. Like sometimes, and it never fails. I'll pick a name and someone's like, that's my sister's name. <laughs> like um, so I've, I've stopped, I've stopped picking names, but like sometimes people will pick a name. Uh, another version of uh, externalization strategy would be like um, speaking to yourself, like, like, using what would be called the third person. Let's say you're noticing like, like, let's say it's me, right? And I'm noticing that I'm having really negative thoughts. I start to narrate it. Tara is having a lot of really unproductive negative thoughts about how she's the worst person in the world, right? Why would I do that? Well, because it starts to create some distance and objectivity. Most people, if you ask, well, what would you say to a friend if they told you they felt that way about themselves? Well, I would tell them this, and it's very different than how they would feel. Would you give your, would you give, would you cut your friend some slack for that mistake that they made in the office the other week? Well, yeah, of course, people make mistakes, right? So when you start to observe it and put it in the third person, it actually starts to become much easier to begin to like kind of challenge it and to realize that like, wow, this thinking is a really unfair. I'm being really unfair to myself in the way that I'm thinking about it. Does that okay. make sense? I think it totally does. Totally All does. Right. What I else you got? Ten. Um, uh, oh, this is a really uh, easy one. <laughs> it's it's easy in theory. Make a list of shit that brings you pleasure. As long as it's not like problematic, like, you know, like heroin or something, right? Like, <laughs> right, yeah. That's, right? Make a list of bring that brings you pleasure. A lot of times when people are trying to feel better, they way overdo it and they try to go after what I would call like high health behaviors. If I, if I'm going to feel better then I need to go to the gym and I need to run and I need me meditating six hours a day. And if I'm not doing that, then nothing will get better. And I would say like the best example I could use is, and that's, that's way too much. So like the best example I could use of ways we do that is let's say somebody wants to eat healthy, eat more healthy, but they're eating donuts every day. 
a lot of times they'll try to go from donuts to, well, I need to eat carrot sticks. If you're eating donuts every day, it's going to be motivationally really hard. To make that that's transition, a, baby. That, that <laughs> big ass leap to go from donuts to carrot sticks. So one of the things that I'll talk to people about is you got to find the bagel, right? A bagel's not great, but it's better than <laughs> I was donuts. Say, I mean, it's better than a donut-ish. Definitely right. not, not as sugary. So right. yeah, I'm it's, with you. Like make a yeah. make a bit of a like instead of like a hardcore donut, like a Boston cream. And now I want donuts. Thanks a lot for that, Doc. I'm trying to get rid of my COVID right. fifteen here. You know, a bagel with some light cream cheese. Right. All right. All right. Why? Fair. Because it's it's an easier transition. And so when I describe that in terms of depressive behaviors, let's say somebody is engaging in like some kind of maybe coping strategy that's like very like highly avoidant or they're spending a lot of time like just aimlessly kind of going through TikTok and then they feel really bad about themselves because they're doing that. And I'm like, well, then read a book. <laughs> like, right. That's like a second, like listen to an audio book, right? Like if that helps you feel less bad and it also helps distract you from some of the noise in your head, that's good enough, right? Yeah. Like, doesn't that, have to be. So what you're saying is doesn't have to be the silver bullet. Don't shoot for the moon right away. You know, like just low hanging fruit. What can you get yourself to do that would be 10 degrees healthier than what you're doing right now? There you go. Not and then when you start getting used to that, you can make another step towards yes. feeling a little better and try something right. like instead right. of the bagel, you go to a much smaller English muffin with, you know, right. natural peanut butter. Sure. But the other action, like the other angle of this is like the other, you know, depression is often about the absence of joy. And so literally sitting down and writing out what are some things that bring you joy and then being like, I need to do one of those things a day. Right. I need to try to inject joy in my life. And it doesn't need to be furious joy. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. It can be like, well, I, I kind of like to sit in the tub and take a bubble bath. Great. Do that. So just little things that bring you just these moments of joy. I mean, and honestly, you know, just to kind of wrap this up, I could keep going. There's so uh, listen, many different I, things. I him, listen, this is the, I know that we're coming to the end of the episode here, but this is really helpful stuff, Doc. So, you know, I just really appreciate giving these tips of the trade, especially as we're coming into the holidays, you know? Right. And I think the other really thing, big thing is try to reduce, <clears throat> being, try, like one of the biggest tips too would be try to reduce being alone and isolating from other yeah. people. Yep. Now, that being said, pick people to be around that you can stand. So, you know, you might, sometimes you don't uh, always listen, have to Listen, I'm with you, Doc. Trust me. Like be around people that lift you up, not people that bring you down. Right. To your to your point, even your that thing, I give that suggestion all the time. Go sit. If you're going to be on TikTok, then go to a coffee shop and be on TikTok. Right. Like go sit somewhere and have dinner. Right. Or go read a book if you're going to read a book versus being alone and doing that. We are, whether we like it or not, social creatures and too much isolation isolation. This is part of why COVID brought people's moods down so much. And especially the periods of a lot more isolation, isolation negatively impacts mood in very real ways. And so if you're trying to pop your mood up, I know even if you're a bit of an introvert, I'm not saying don't take your personal space, but try to be around people and engage in 
mild to meaningful social activity For because sure. a lot and, and sometimes like I said the best way to do that you may not have do not wait for motivation because if a lot of times you have to force it. So you might have to use everything you can think of to get you there. You might have to set an alarm, put a set, like put a note up in your apartment that says, do something, spend time with people. You might have to have a friend call you and say, do not let me weasel out of this. I am coming to your house on Wednesday night. Yeah. Hold you, find ways to hold yourself accountable. If you rely on, and this is the last thing I'll say, if you rely on intrinsic motivation, meaning that motivation to just magically show up, you're going to be waiting a long time. So you have to find ways to create external motivation. And so a lot of times that's reminders, accountability, right? Alarms, things that remind you of the intentions that you have and the behaviors you want to engage in. Well said, well done. And you didn't go down any crazy rabbit holes. We didn't go spiraling into different places. You did so <laughs> good. You did Thank so you. good. Well it's a done. big topic. It's a big topic. We could do parts two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and just keep going. Well, absolutely. And but please just remember out there, folks, that you know, if you are struggling, please go talk to somebody like the doc said. You know, try to make some behavioral changes. We're coming into the holidays. It's a tough, tough time. And just remember, like your good old pal Jeremiah, you know, I struggle with learning disability. I've taken medication for depression, and uh, I'm not ashamed of any of it. So if you're feeling shame or you're feeling embarrassed, you know, just for me to you out there, don't feel that way to the best of your abilities or reach out to people that may have experienced it before so you can talk to them and get a sense of their experience because it really is helpful. And I've had some really wonderful people in my life help me through difficult times. So, you know, reach out and go talk to somebody. Don't be afraid of medication. And thank you, Doc, for just, you know, keeping it going, you know, keeping this conversation open and rolling forward. So I appreciate you, Doc. I appreciate everything that you do for so many people. Thank you so much for making and forcing me to do this episode today. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, hey, have a great Thanksgiving, Doc. You have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody. Enjoy yourselves. Enjoy your family. And we'll be talking to you soon. Take care. Bye, Doc. Bye. This episode of the University of Pleasure was produced, directed, and edited by me, Jeremiah James. It was written by Dr. Tara Jansen and me, Jeremiah James. The University of Pleasure theme music was written by the incomparable Robert Feldstein. Additional multimedia support by associate producer Kyle Binkley. And please remember, we want to be as inclusive as possible of the diverse experiences of others here at the University of Pleasure. So please email us your suggestions for topics that might be suited to you directly, questions, feedback, or just really great sex stories at contact at universityofpleasure.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to like, share, and subscribe to all of our social media. <laughs>